0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: In the centre of each atom, there is a nucleus, and when one nucleus is made so hot that it combines or fuses with another nucleus, a huge amount of energy is created. That's fusion. And in a major breakthrough last year at the National Ignition Facility in California, 192 lasers achieved fusion, and created energy. It's clearly an important development, and to understand it, how it was done, where it might lead, I'm joined by Sharon Ann Holgate, the author of Nuclear Fusion, The Race to Build a Mini-Sun on Earth. So welcome to you.
0: Hello, Erwin. Nice to be with you. And
1: let's just deal with the basics. So we all understand fusing two objects, I guess, joining them together. Just a bit more detail on what nuclear fusion is actually joining together and how it's done and why it happens.
0: Okay, so you can kind of think of fusion... It's sort of similar to fission, which is what our current crop of nuclear power stations rely on, in the sense that they're both nuclear reactions. But in the case of fission, we're splitting an atom. We're basically splitting a nucleus into um, two different nuclei. Whereas in fusion, as you've just said, we're actually fusing two together. But both processes, as I say, obviously are still nuclear reactions and They also both release a vast amount of energy to understand where all that energy comes from. It's actually from a physics effect. It's a thing called the strong nuclear force. And this actually binds the protons and neutrons inside a nucleus together. And one of the peculiar effects of this strong nuclear force is that the mass of a nucleus is actually Ever so slightly less than the mass of the individual protons and neutrons that make up that nucleus. As I say, a very peculiar effect. But the great thing in terms of generating energy is that whenever you're creating new nuclei, either by fission, splitting them apart, or fusion, bringing them together, this mass that's kind of left over gets released as energy. And it was actually Einstein back in his special theory of relativity in 1905, that first showed that there is actually an equivalence of mass and energy. In other words, mass and energy are effectively interchangeable. And he summarised this in arguably the most famous equation in the world, E equals mc squared. So this equation covers, as I say, both fission and fusion and the e in the equation is absolutely enormous because the m which is the mass difference between when these protons and neutrons are bound in a nucleus and when they're separate can be really really tiny which indeed it is but because it's multiplied by c in the equation and c in fact is squared c is the speed of light And that is absolutely gigantic. That's 300,000 kilometres a second. So you can see that even if you've got a really tiny M, you get still this enormous amount of energy coming out.
1: Right. So what was done in in fission and in fusion now in California, the, the, the outcome was predictable. I mean, E equals mc squared basically helped the physicists working on this know what would happen and in fact has been vindicated by what did happen.
0: I, I guess you could look at it like that. Yes, I mean certainly the physics of fusion and, and fission has been studied for you know many many decades now, and um, I, but the really exciting thing about that that's just happened at the National Ignition Facility is this is the first time that people have been able to demonstrate in a laboratory more energy coming out of a fusion reaction than was put in. So that's the really critical thing about that result, and that's why it excited so many people.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk more about that experiment uh, at the end, but just first on how how to do this. Now, I said you had to get the nucleus very, very hot. How hot and what does the heat due to the nucleus to make it fusible, as it were?
0: Ah, right. OK, so the heat has to be astonishingly 10 times hotter than the core of the sun. So you're basically looking to replicate the hydrogen atoms in the sun fusing together and forming helium, which is what gives out our sun's energy. But the thing is, we haven't got anything anywhere near as large as the sun here on Earth. So what we have to do is actually make the conditions much, much, much hotter. So the sun, because it's absolutely gigantic, you know, it, it's got its own, um, you know, it, it, the sun's density and the absolutely immense gravitational forces that are at play in the sun are all acting to push the heat hydrogen nuclei closer together which makes them more likely to fuse so this is basically what you're trying to do on earth but because we haven't got those huge forces those huge pressures and there's no way we can replicate them one of the things we have to do is go to much much higher temperatures so to get this type of fusion reaction you're looking at a temperature of 150 million degrees celsius
1: Right. How do you get that hot? I mean, it's, uh, that, that's, that's very hot. How, how do
0: you achieve that? OK, well, the various different methods of heating, but in the case of the National Ignition Facility, as you mentioned, they had 192 laser beams and these were all converged. They were focused in onto this tiny little gold canister which contained the fuel pellet and that was two isotopes of hydrogen called deuterium and tritium and essentially they cause this fuel pellet to implode and that's like a sort of inwards facing explosion and it's such an enormous it creates such an enormous temperature and pressure doing that that that's enough for fusion conditions to be created why do
1: the people in california and you're speaking about the sun, uh, it's, it's hydrogen that seems to be at play here. Why is it hydrogen?
0: If we tried to fuse on Earth elements that are heavier than hydrogen, you would need it to be even hotter. And so it, it just it just isn't feasible. It's, a, it's an engineering thing, basically, that if we use isotopes of hydrogen, that's actually feasible to do, essentially. So it, it's a practicality.
1: And one of the benefits, as I understand it, of fusion rather than fission is that there's much less radioactive waste. So uh, how much less and why? Why is there less?
0: Absolutely. I mean, that is one of the main advantages, And as, as you say of it. I mean... I think one thing that I found quite fascinating when I was writing the book was just learning that if we get to the point where we can have commercial fusion reactors, there 's so much less radioactivity that by a hundred years after you decommissioned a fusion plant, it would actually be safe for humans to walk inside. you know the radioactivity levels would have dropped so low now, hundred years might sound a long time to have to wait to go inside but let's compare this to fission. You know, this is creating radioactive waste with incredibly long lifetimes. You know, literally these materials and the fuel that we use in fission reactors remains radioactive for millions and millions of years. So by contrast, you know, this is Absolutely. Uh, You know, on a completely different level in terms of radioactivity. One of the reasons for that is that the fusion reaction just results in helium. And of course, that isn't radioactive in itself. But the small amount of radioactivity that you do get in a fusion reactor is because the fusion reaction also produces neutrons. And these have got incredibly high energies. And as they go shooting off In all directions, it just irradiates parts of the reactor materials. But as I say, nowhere near to the extent of radioactivity levels that we see in the current fission nuclear plants.
1: I'm just wondering, you know, when you see a fission explosion, as we did in in Japan after the war or or, all those tests, yeah, there's a massive explosion in a mushroom cloud and so on with the energy created by that splitting of the atom. Why wasn't there a similar mushroom cloud and explosion in California when they did fusion? Or would there be if they just did a lot more of it, a lot more uh, fusion in, in one event?
0: No, because that is the difference between a controlled nuclear reaction, which we've got in a laboratory, and an uncontrolled nuclear reaction. I should stress that I'm not an expert on nuclear weapons at all, but as far as I understand it, that is the difference. And also another thing to say about fission is that this is what's known as a chain reaction. So you can think of a chain reaction a little bit like a virus being passed on. You know, if I have a virus and I speak to you and one of your friends standing next to you and I happen to pass that virus to the two of you, you each in turn may go and pass that virus on to two more people. And so you see how that multiplies up very quickly. And a fission reaction is very similar to that. So the neutrons coming out of a fission reaction then trigger more fission in other atoms. And so the process multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. In fusion, it's not a chain reaction. You're having to supply huge amounts of pressure and of heat in order for the fusion reaction to occur. And the minute you stop putting in all of that heating or or, or whatever methods you're using to help compress it as well, the reaction simply ceases. So in that sense, it is a completely different reaction. And this is one of the reasons why some physicists describe the fusion reaction as inherently safe, because you can't get any of these sort of runaway events that you can potentially get with nuclear fission.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that takes me on to another question, which I guess is quite hard to answer because it's very speculative. But it just just occurs to me that the interest in fission and we're getting on to the sort of politics of this now, the geopolitics, the, the, the emphasis on fission after the Second World War Oh, during the Second World War, when all those uh, research programmes were going on, was because of its potential explosive force, its use as a military weapon. Whereas if if there'd been more interest, frankly, from the beginning in the energy that could have been created from this nuclear science, we might have had fusion before we
0: had fission. I, I don't know whether that's the case or not. I mean, I would certainly say that fusion in terms of energy generation, is definitely a much more tricky engineering prospect than fission. So that's probably not the case. But I think what's really interesting when I was looking at the sort of research for the book is how as you say, you know, the geopolitics is such an important part of this. I mean, I think probably the turning point, I would say, for fusion was when Dwight D. Eisenhower, you know, the then um, president of the United States, he gave what became known as the Atoms for Peace speech in December of 1953. It was at the United Nations meeting. And this is one of the things that this contained was a plan for the US to encourage peaceful uses of fissionable material. Because as you say, prior to that point, all the energies have been going into weapons research. And out of the back of that came this interest in looking at fusion as a potential energy source. And And certainly, you know, by the 1950s, there was a lot of excitement about fusion energy research. And you see another resurgence in interest in the 1970s. Again, a geopolitical situation, where, you know, there were oil shortages. And again, you suddenly see a lot of funding from governments and so on going into fusion research. So definitely a very strong link, I would say, um, was certainly how I interpreted it from from looking through the history of this. Between the
1: geopolitics and and the work in the labs, as it were. So uh, just tell us, uh, looking at fusion then, because, I mean, people know the fission story and the Manhattan Project and all that. But the fusion story starts, you're saying, a little bit after the Second World War. And in the United States, did did others try and achieve fusion? Was it mainly the US? Where, where was trying to do
0: it early on? Quite a few countries were, but a lot of this research was, was classified. And interestingly, as I was writing this book, some of the things... I was trying to ask interviewees. In fact, some of this research is still classified. So there are certain things that I wasn't able to find out. I mean, certainly one thing that, that, you know, there's a lot of information on the internet and so forth about is some of the things that were being done early on in the US and in the UK. So in the UK, for instance, in the like, late 1950s we had this device called a Z pinch machine and it was basically i mean it would look extremely basic compared to the sorts of fusion experiments we're having now it was essentially a, a tube filled with deuterium gas that had a coil of wire running through it and Electricity got passed through that wire and that created a plasma from the gas. And then you had a magnetic field that essentially pinched the plasma away from the walls. And this is why it became known as a pinch machine. So, you know, again, actually, the origins of that machine were for research into weapons. But it soon became clear that this was telling us things about plasmas, about the fusion process that could indeed be used for energy research. So there was another cylindrical device that that the UK used I'd say that the sort of first big one, if you like, was a device called Zeta, which stood for Zero Energy Thermonuclear Assembly. And this was started up for the first time in 1957. It was based in Harwell and it had a ring shaped plasma chamber. And that's where the story becomes quite interesting, because for Zeta, the scientists there thought that the answer to get your best amount of energy out of fusion was to have the strongest part of the magnetic field, which is confining the plasma, from the electric current running through the inside of the machine, rather than from an external magnet system. However, at the same time, the Soviets were developing a different type of machine. So this was known as a tokamak. It was first conceived by Andrei Sakharov in the 1950s. And one of the fundamental differences with this machine was that they were using stronger fields from the external magnets than from the currents running through the plasma. So to cut a very long story short, the Soviets were getting their plasmas up to much, much higher temperatures than either the UK or the US. So the US had gone through quite a few different variants of machines. Um, One of them was a pinch device. So we're talking back the sort of cylindrical tube that was part of Project Sherwood was the name of the US fusion project, which was started in 1951. And this pinch device, which was their first device as part of Project Sherwood, was known as SILA-1. And that worked very, very similar to the pinch device we had in the UK. So the US also had a series of machines known as the Perhapsitron series. So these were rather charmingly named, the idea being... Perhaps the machine would work or perhaps it wouldn't. And they also had some other kind of sci-fi sounding things going on in the US. They had a technology known as the hydromagnetic plasma gun, which was created in 1957. And the idea of that was they thought that maybe it would be useful to actually inject plasmas into fusion machines, which interestingly is a concept that is still being looked at um, by and private companies at the moment so um, if i come back to the situation between the uk and the us so the uk and the us are both looking at confinement systems that have got this particular arrangement not using so much magnetic field from the external magnets whereas the soviets are doing the opposite they're getting most of their magnetic confinement from the external magnets and They were showing plasma temperatures so much higher than the UK or the US could produce. But of course, it was the height of the Cold War and people didn't believe them in the West. They thought that these results just were not true. After some very careful negotiations, a team ended up getting permission to go from the UK out to the Soviet Union to use the new temperature measuring devices that have been developed at the Atomic Energy Authority in the UK on this Soviet machine. And they did indeed show that the Soviet Tokamak design was creating much higher temperature plasmas and therefore looked a much, much better bet as a future fusion energy power plant concept, if you like. And As soon as our scientists got back here and reported the results, that changed in an instant the direction of research for both the UK and the United States. They both switched straight to the tokamak design.
1: That's so interesting, isn't it? Because there was cooperation then across the Cold War divide. And and presumably that couldn't have happened in the nuclear weapons field. It was just uh, far too contested. But in this field of fusion, where it's about creating energy rather than creating weapons, there was a degree of uh, cooperation.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this didn't become hugely formalized in, until a bit of a later stage, you know, Um I would say that you know from what i've found by interviewing people and researching this it it, it it's looking that like through much of the 1970s you know international sharing of results was becoming much more commonplace definitely, but you're not actually seeing a real formalised collaboration on nuclear fusion until 1985, when there was a summit between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. And then this finally really got going in 2006, where the agreement was signed to create ITER, which stands for the way in Latin. And this is the huge Tokamak facility being built currently in Cadarache in the south of France.
1: Yes, well, that brings in France. I was wondering about that. So, yeah, you've talked about the US working on this, USSR, UK. Who else has been involved in the the fusion race? Presumably, the Chinese in recent years.
0: In recent years, yes, there, there are there are many international players in fusion. Now, the Chinese have tokamak reactor. Um, there is the K Star in. South Korea, which is being used to test as a test bed for a lot of the ETA technologies. And I should also say that JET in Cullum in the UK is also being used as a test bed for some of the ETA technologies as well. And that's actually led to JET having a much longer lifespan than was originally intended because the fusion community has then used this to try out all sorts of different technologies as our knowledge has progressed in fusion. And so this has meant that this has ended up being an incredibly long lived project.
1: Yeah, in describing this, you're you're mentioning the big players, the US, the USSR, UK, China, and presumably it's restricted to countries with a you know, frankly, with a budget big enough to do it.
0: I mean, there is certainly there is a huge level of international cooperation in ETA. So all manner of countries are putting finances into this. But just to give some idea of the scale of the cost, the, the best estimate is that the cost of getting ETA to the stage of first having a plasma going inside it is approximately 17 billion euros. So, I mean, we're talking serious cash here and the decommissioning phases, the estimate for that uh, when it was first calculated in 2001 was that it would cost around 281 million euros for the first phase of it and then 530 million euros for the second phase of decommissioning. And that would be on top of any costs that are incurred, you know, during operational lifetime of the machine so i think that just gives some idea of the scale and i think this leads on to something which i think is an important point to make you were talking about what countries are looking into fusion and so on i think something that came through really strongly from all the fusion experts i spoke with was this idea that it's not very likely that the final solution to uh, fusion energy in terms of exactly what technology would make a viable commercial plant is going to come from just one country or one project, it's much more likely to be a collaboration or a pooling together of knowledge from private fusion companies who've got the ability to be extraordinarily nimble, trying out designs on a much smaller scale compared with publicly funded projects from governments. So I think that's another really interesting aspect of fusion. That, as I say, most fusion experts I spoke with did not think that it was all going to come from these huge international collaborations or entirely from private companies either, but definitely from a a mixture of the knowledge gained from both approaches.
1: Nonetheless, as we we said at the beginning, this national ignition facility in California at the uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory has had this big breakthrough. And I just wonder, what the implications of that are. I mean, what stage are we at in the development of, of fusion energy that people can use?
0: This is the thing, is that this is the multi-million dollar question, which unfortunately I obviously can't answer and neither can anyone else really. I mean, I think it's interesting if you speak to people at the private fusion companies, a lot of them are hoping to have power going onto the grid during the 2030s. But I think the National Ignition Facility experiment is actually quite a good indicator of how far away we are. So I mean this in the sense that, yes, they focus 2.05 megajoules of laser light onto their fuel and they got 3.15 megajoules out. So absolutely fantastic, an amazing result. Yes, they have shown. That they can get more energy out of a fusion reaction than was put in. However, that does not account for the amount of energy that it took to power those lasers. Now, that took an additional 300 megajoules of energy, which they had to take off of the grid to fire up this laser. So, if you look at it like that, they're an awful long way away from how we call it, like an engineering break-even point. I mean, I should stress that to be fair to the National Ignition Facility, they never designed that laser to be efficient. So that wasn't the purpose, Uh, you know, that wasn't in their mindset when they were designing that laser. But I think this just does give us pause for thought. You know, the amount of power that generated was only enough to, boil a few kettles it's you know each of those shots that they do at the National Ignition Facility takes over a month to prepare for and it only lasts for a few billionths of a second so it literally is over in faster than the blink of an eye and in reality if you were to use that technology as a power the basis for a power plant You need to be having 10 of those shots happening every second. You know, the power plant would eat its way through one million of those fuel capsules daily. So I think I don't want to in any way play down that achievement. It has been amazing. It has shown that we can generate energy from fusion power in a controlled way in a laboratory. And that is an amazing result. But it also gives you some idea of just the enormity of the scale of the challenges that lie ahead if we're to commercialise fusion for electricity generation.
1: Well, that's a very helpful thing to understand because, yeah, it sounds very expensive and very difficult and we can sort of blasily say, oh, well, yeah, they'll work out more efficient ways to do it. But that's, by the sounds of it, it's such a huge challenge. It could take a very long time. I mean, do you think that the green energy that's being developed, the, the wind, the solar, all the rest of it, will actually get there before Fusion even becomes viable?
0: Well, this, of course, is a really valid point, isn't it? I mean, my own personal opinion is that, yes, we of course should be funding Fusion because we desperately need as many versions of green energy as we can find but in my personal view we shouldn't fund it to the detriment of other green energies a lot of which as you're pointing out are at a much more mature stage so yes it is perfectly feasible that nuclear fusion in some ways could kind of miss the boat but at the same time when we see with the current geopolitical situation causing energy prices to hike extremely high. Obviously, it's attractive to many nations, this idea of being able to generate their own energy to a much greater extent than they can now and to not be so reliant on importing energy from overseas.
1: Sure, you can see why everyone would want it. It's just a question of whether they'll get it quick enough.
0: Well, that, that is the thing, isn't it? It's impossible to really put any formalized time scale onto this all you can say is that that at the National Ignition Facility was certainly a huge step forward. But I think it's important to note that a lot of people still think that the tokamak design is actually going to be a more likely contender for a fusion energy plant. And I should just explain what a tokamak is. So as a simple analogy, which I wrote in the book, I said, imagine you're going to the bakers and you buy yourself a donut. And for reasons best known to yourself, you have that donut gold plated and then you drill a tiny little hole into the bottom of your gold plated donut. And then you heat the whole thing up so high that your donut melts in the middle and dribbles out of the hole. And essentially what you're left with is the inside of a tokamak fusion reactor. It's a donut shaped plasma chamber. And where your molten donut had been is where the plasma will be. And the little hole that you drilled in the bottom is a component known as the diverter. And that's where all the spent fuel comes out and the new fuel is injected in. And as I say, a lot of people think that that approach, which is known as a magnetic confinement technology, as opposed to the National Ignition Facility, which is an inertial confinement technology, could be the answer. But I should stress that there are also people looking at all manner of different hybrid technologies, which mix different bits of ideas from those two main approaches, a lot of which are being pursued, as we speak, by private fusion companies. And as I mentioned earlier, because they're funded in a completely different way they're funded in the most part by private investment they've got the ability to try out lots of different concepts and some far more unusual ideas than a lot of the government funded programs which by the necessity of the fact that they're using taxpayers money have to be a lot more cautious in what research they fund so I think This is one of the main reasons why the answers may well lie in a combination of these two types of research, because obviously government funded programmes have to be very careful with their taxpayers' money. So they tend to be a bit more risk averse than private companies who are able, as I say, to just be a lot more nimble in their approach and, and try things out that are a lot quicker to build, don't cost as much. And, and this is great, because it, it just enables lots of different ideas to be thrown into the melting pot.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that, because that reminds me of the research into genetics, when I think it was Clinton who was determined that the government effort got there first before the private effort, so that the techniques would be universally available rather than commercially owned. Maybe you end up in the same situation with fusion.
0: I think it's important to stress, though, that a lot of these private fusion companies, there are pots of government-funded money that some of them can apply for. You know, in the US, for instance, their Department of Energy has got something called the INFUSE programme, an innovation network for fusion energy that stands for. And these give private companies access not only to funding, which which is offered through this Infuse program, but also access to technical expertise and capabilities at Department of Energy national labs and at U.S. universities. So certainly, you know, there are definitely collaborations happening in that way and in, in a sort of similar way to partnerships between nasa and spacex so i think that's also a very interesting development which is quite new in the fusion energy sector and it'll be very interesting to see where that sort of joint program leads
1: yeah exactly so the, the copyright issues or the ownership issues may be rather more complex than i than i suggested well look, that's that's uh... Very, very interesting. Thank you very much, Sharon and Holgate, for telling us about where nuclear fusion's got to and where it may be going.
0: Thanks for having me, Owen. It's been a pleasure.